Thanks, Jeff. Um, our heart as leadership is that um, this is sort of a unique moment with the Olympics being held in China. And so we want to ask you if you would join us praying faithfully and consistently for the church in China as you're watching the Olympics. Just let that be a prayer prompt for you. Every time you see one of those events happening, think about the brothers and sisters in Christ that are right there that are experiencing all that Jeff described. And uh, Voice of the Martyrs gives some great resources that you and I can use to help us pray uh, effectively for that church. So um, we're going to just use that kind of as a campaign, a prayer campaign, uh, while the Olympics is going on. So uh, we'd ask you to join us in that. All right, uh, if you'll turn uh, to the book of Hebrews, we're going to carry on in chapter 6. And I want to address an issue, and I think that's what this passage is addressing, but something that I feel very confident every single person in this room can relate to. So if you've never heard a sermon that really applied well to you, today's your day. It's coming. Um, I want to talk about a thing, and I couldn't think of a phrase to describe it uh, until uh, this week, but... Faith fatigue? Has anybody ever experienced that? Faith fatigue. Here's what that is. That is what you and I feel when life demands more from us than we expected and it doesn't let up. Like all of us have a bad day or maybe even a bad week, perhaps even a bad month. But has anybody in here had a bad year or two? And faith fatigue is that, man, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, I'm trying to walk with God. I'm trying to be faithful. And I am getting tired, (laughs) getting worn out, getting discouraged. I'm tempted to lose heart, to grow weary. It's amazing how often weariness is addressed with the early church because of all that they we're facing in those moments where life is so hard I appreciate uh, the description that Jeff gave us of what Chinese Christians experience every day it's easy to grow exhausted spiritually in the midst of that if you're not thinking rightly about those moments the temptation in that condition is to maybe kind of concede or compromise or even just coast. Just kind of take it easy. Lay low. Stay off the radar. Disengage. Which is all to basically take an easier path than what we believe it would be to follow wholeheartedly after Christ. So we're always making those decisions. And when we become spiritually fatigued, that's when we're tempted to take an easy path. The book of Hebrews was written, I believe, to a group of Christians who had faith fatigue in a very serious way. His whole thing is, he's saying, I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to step back. I want you to stay engaged in it. I know it's hard. 
And I want you to stay at it. I want to repeat last week verses 11 and 12 from chapter 6 because they take us right into the passage that we're going to do today. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Christians who are fatigued, they're tired, they're exhausted, and considering giving up. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, if I were to paraphrase that, it's not perfect, but I would say this. Here's what the writer's saying. We want you to be full of stubborn hope. The kind of hope that finishes well through faith and patience and receives the inheritance God has promised his people. Now that may sound inspirational to us, but again, I want you to hear it with the ears of someone who is spiritually fatigued. That may sound like a coach yelling in your ear after you've run 50 miles, keep running. You're like, seriously? I think I'm done. Like any great coach, this writer knows what he's asking and he understands the challenge. And yet he calls us to more because he knows that at the end of more is all that God has promised. You know, most of what God promises has very little to do with this life and everything to do with the next. And that's where he is pointing our attention. He tells us to, in verse 12, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he highlights the greatest of the great, the goat of the Old Testament, Abraham. And he says, I want you to watch this guy. He's not perfect, but I want you to watch how he walked with God. And then imitate that, and you'll finish well. What we get from Abraham's experience is, in your notes, the pattern of perseverance. There's a pattern there that he highlights in the first few verses. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So Abraham is the writer's premier example of someone who has done as he has suggested, who has stayed at it, been faithful, persevered in the midst of hardship. He, the pattern of perseverance there, let me just run through that. There's four parts. First of all, God made a promise to Abraham. He actually made a lot of promises to Abraham over the course of his life. 
Um, and it's interesting in the book of Hebrews, the word promise appears 17 times more than any other New Testament book. So there's something about this idea of promise that's very important for us to understand. Then it says that God guaranteed his promise with an oath. We're going to learn about that oath today. But that was part of the pattern of perseverance in the relationship between God and his man, Abraham. Then Abraham, in response, it says he patiently waited. We're going to describe that as well and understand what does it mean to patiently wait for God to fulfill his promise. And then lastly, it says Abraham obtained the promise. He finished well and he received from God what God said he would give him. Now, in the midst of these few verses, the writer is highlighting an interaction between God and Abraham in Genesis 22. So you might write that down. Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18. It reads this way. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this is the passage that the writer of Hebrews has in mind when he says what he says to the Hebrew Christians. So let me go back through our pattern and fill that out a little bit as it relates to Genesis 22. There's a promise there, obviously. But the original promise, keep in mind, came 25 years earlier when God initiated his covenant with Abraham. So just, we're talking about faith fatigue. It's been 25 years since God first promised Abraham that he was going to bless him and multiply him and give his influence, spread his influence throughout the earth. It's been 25 years. And when he received the promise, he didn't have a son. So he's not quite sure how an inheritance is even going to happen. Imagine the faith fatigue that he must have experienced a time or two over those few decades. Then secondly, there's an oath in that Genesis 22 passage. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And it says that God swore by himself because there was no one greater to swear by. You've heard people say, uh, so help me God. That, that's kind of the idea of the oath here. So what does God say? So help me myself. Right? He's just saying, I don't have anything bigger or better or greater to appeal to than me. And so I'll put me on the line for the fulfillment of this promise that I have made. That's the oath. People, we know this, guarantee what they're going to do with an oath of this kind. In fact, here's a formula so that you can understand promise and oath. The promise represents a committed action. It's just, this is what I am going to do. That's the promise. 
then the oath is the assurance of fulfillment, however you might make that. Now, you put those together, and it's airtight, especially if God's the one saying it. So that's the promise and the oath. Now, with Genesis 22 in mind, again, we can see that the, the patience Abraham demonstrated wasn't passive. This interaction between God and Abraham took place right after he just about sacrificed his one and only son that had been given to him by God to fulfill that promise of inheritance. So once again, just imagine Abraham, he waited all those years to have a son. He now has a son and God tells him to sacrifice him. That's got to be confusing. But if you read through Abraham's journey with God, he obeys immediately. God says, I want you to get up, take your son, go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And Abraham says, yes, sir, and goes. And God literally has to stop him from killing his son. His assumption was God's promise with an oath is good. So even if I take the life of my son, which I can't even fathom, but even if I do, God's going to make a way. Most commentators will say he just assumed God would raise his son from the dead, which would have made perfect sense, right? He's God. But still, Abraham's got to do the deed. It's hard to imagine, but he faithfully does what God calls him to do, and the writer of Hebrews describes that as waiting patiently. Nothing passive about that at all. Waiting patiently is a stark contrast to being sluggish, as we've heard about, or being dull of hearing. This is the opposite of that, and it's the quality of Abraham that we're urged to imitate. Finally, Abraham saw some of what God promised come to fruition in his lifetime. And I want to highlight the, the word some because Abraham didn't get all that he was promised in his lifetime. We'll learn that in uh, Hebrews 11, him along with a whole lot of other faithful believers. But as I mentioned earlier, God's promises have far less to do with this life and much more to do with the next. So I want you to imagine that moment when Abraham passed from this life into God's presence. All of God's promises were fulfilled in that moment. He saw it all coming together for the first time. And can you imagine him getting into that moment and saying, I, guess, I mean, it's all right. <laughs> I, I'm thinking he's jumping up and down out of his mind saying, you know what? It was worth it. Every bit of it was worth it. Holding on to that hope that God had given me in his promise. It was worth it. And I would do it again and again and again and again. It's a beautiful picture 
of finishing well. Well, after outlining the pattern of perseverance, the writer underscores the power of God's promises. And I would say that no one perseveres without a grasp of God's promise. There's just, we just don't have it in us. So let's look at uh, verse 17. He says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I love the mention here of God's desire. So, so often God seems distant, maybe even a little bit impersonal. I know that was certainly how I saw him as a young boy. Um, but here it says that he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. God loves to reveal himself. And when we don't see him, it's faulty vision. It's not because he hasn't shown himself. He's put himself in beautiful display. Notice also he doesn't reveal himself just to Abraham. There's a mention of heirs. And those heirs of the promise certainly refer to the initial descendants of Abraham. So that would have been ethnic Jews. But it can't only mean that because the writer starts to attach himself to that lineage. So it's not just ethnic Jews, it's also spiritual Jews. And that's confirmed if you want to write down Galatians 3.29. Paul writes this, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, Jew or Gentile. Heirs according to promise. So just imagine this. When God is making his promise and his oath to Abraham for the benefit of convincing the heirs of that promise that his word is reliable, God had you, very specifically you, not just us, you. He had you in mind. He wanted you to be confident That every promise he made to Abraham that would apply to his redemptive plan, it applies to you. You are either walking in alignment with that beautiful promise or not. And he wants you to believe that it is dependable. God had us in mind when he made his sworn promise to Abraham. And he did it to encourage us in the midst of our faith fatigue. When we start to lose heart. When we grow weary. Let's look for a minute at this idea of an oath. I mentioned earlier that's an assurance of fulfillment. And there's a beautiful picture of that in uh, Genesis 15. Which punctuated the initial covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12. Now, in Genesis 15, God promised more specifically 
that Abraham would have a son. So that initial promise in Genesis 12, that was just, I'm going to make of you an inheritance. So it was very general in nature. When we get to 15, he starts to talk about a son and that his, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. That's verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 15. So in the midst of that, again, understandably, Abraham asks a question. He says, how am I going to know that this is going to happen? There's just a hint of faith fatigue there, right? <laughs> He's like, give me something so that I can know that this promise, which is super hard to believe, uh, Abraham by this time, let's say he's in his 80s. How am I going to have a son? And how is he going to be an inheritance that fills the earth? And the Lord answers with a very powerful, physical illustration of his commitment. It's a covenant oath ritual. I've got a picture for you to see here, but God instructed Abraham to cut several animals in half and lay them like side by side with a passage down the middle. A custom in that day was that particularly like two kings, for instance, if they were making a covenant with each other, they would do that, they would make their promise, right? And they would both walk between those animals, reiterating their promise as an oath that they would fulfill what they have promised. And the picture is, the king is saying, let this be done to me if I don't fulfill my promise. Okay? Now, here's what's unique about this moment. Abraham's not walking through, only God. God owns every bit of this promise and oath. It says he took the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And as he made his promise, he walked between those animals as if to say, this is sort of hard to get your head around, but God is saying, let this be done to me if I don't fulfill this promise that I've made to you, Abraham. And since Abraham isn't walking through, it's a unilateral covenant. In other words, it's on God and God alone, which also makes it unconditional. So Abraham's performance doesn't affect the promise. And if you read about Abraham's performance, he struggles at times. But it has nothing to do with God making good on what he has said. It's a powerful, powerful moment in the history of God's people. And it was meant to give us confidence that what God says goes. He does it reliably again and again and again. I have to imagine that that promise, which happened years earlier before that moment on Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, that had to be on his mind when he's thinking, I'm going to take the life of my son. That just sounds insane. But I was there. <laughs> I saw God walk down in between those animals. I'm going to trust him. 
Now, something interesting about this idea of oath, or you might think of a sworn promise. God didn't need to do that, did he? The writer of Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. God himself says that. So he could have just made a promise and then that's it. It's good. So why did he do it? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us he basically just wanted to remove all doubt that his promise was good. Not only was he committing to do something, but he was assuring them that it would be done. He did it to instill even greater confidence among his people in the unchangeable character of his purpose, which that covenant promise was meant to convey. Now, many commentators point to God's promise and oath as the reference of that uh, unchangeable, the two unchangeable things that are mentioned there. And certainly they could be. A lot of commentators will just mention, when it mentions the two unchangeable things, they refer to God's promise and God's oath, that those two things are unchangeable. I want to give you an alternative that made a lot of sense as I thought about this passage in the larger context of Hebrews. Think about this for a minute. Not all of God's promises are unconditional. So there were some that he gave to Israel. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there were some things that he conditioned upon their obedience, their response to him. So in that sense, then, if you say that the promise is the unchangeable thing, what do you do with the promises that are changeable? So here's an alternative. There are two moments when God does this unilateral promise oath kind of covenant, one of which we just talked about, the Abrahamic covenant. The second is the priesthood of Jesus, taken from Psalm 110, verse 4, which is mentioned here and a few other times. We're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about Melchizedek, but in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, the Lord has sworn, there's the oath, and will not change his mind. It's unchangeable. You, speaking of the Lord, Jesus Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So perhaps what the writer of Hebrews is doing is pointing to these two promise oaths, both of which were unilateral, unconditional, and unchangeable. And he's saying, based on these two things that God has said and done... You can trust him absolutely without any question, regardless of what your circumstances might be like. And by the way, if you're just wondering, again, the, the writer says it's impossible for God to lie. God's doubly strong promises serve as doubly strong encouragement to us when we're feeling faith fatigue. Now, the last half of verse 18 echoes a provision that God made for Israel as they entered the promised land. Um, He says that he wanted to give confidence to those who had fled for refuge. Go back here and read that. Fled for refuge. 
that they might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews, there's a whole lot more going on than is obvious to us. Um, All the more reason for us to know our Bibles so that we pick up on things that he's pointing to. So that language there um, echoes that provision that God made as Israel went into the promised land, and it was this thing called cities of refuge. Now, the Levitical priesthood, they were designated 48 cities throughout all of Palestine on the west and the east side of the Jordan. Six of those cities were designated as cities of refuge. And here was their purpose, and you can see there on the map. On the west side, Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. On the east side of the Jordan, Golan, Ramoth, Gilead, and Bezer. So these cities existed for this purpose. If you accidentally killed somebody, you were known as a manslayer. And when you killed somebody, there was an avenger of the deceased who had the right to take your life. Kind of that idea of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing. So that avenger would pursue you to take your life because you took the life of one of their relatives. Your only hope was to get to a city of refuge. And when you entered into that city, you went to the altar and you held on to the horns of the altar as a plea for protection. And God set aside an opportunity for the priests and the congregation of that city to judge whether or not you had malice when you took the life of this person. If they judged you as innocent, you were considered a manslayer, but you would be protected. You would not be turned over to the avenger. And the avenger could not come in and take your life as long as you stayed in the protective boundaries of that city. If you left that city, then the avenger could take you at any time. If it was determined that you had committed murder, then the avenger could take your life, regardless of where you were, even in a city of refuge. So that's the imagery that the writer has in mind when he says, those who have fled for refuge, you've done something, you're a manslayer, and and so you have fled for refuge, and when you get there, you take hold of the horns of the altar, pleading for mercy, God made this promise and oath so that you could know if you were to do that, you're safe. That is a a place of refuge for you. We're going to get more into that as we finish up. But God's sworn promises are encouraging cities of refuge for all who place their hope in him. Regardless of your guilt. You have a high priest, and that's where we finish this passage. The faithful path of our high priest, Jesus, is our hope. So verse 19, the writer says, We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's the reference to Psalm 110. The writer moves from nautical imagery to theological, so we'll start with the nautical. He mentions a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And isn't that reassuring? So a lot of the fatigue that we feel is because of all of the the uncertainty, the chaos, am I right, that goes on around us. That's what makes us tired, spiritually speaking. So what if you had a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? You might be able to handle all of that chaos and uncertainty and hardship. Think about an anchor, just very physically, generically. It holds a sea vessel in place regardless of what is happening, the current beneath the surface or a storm above. That anchor holds that ship in place. It keeps it from drifting. Isn't that the thing that the writer's been talking about? He's warning us against drifting, and he's saying, guess what? You have a sure and steadfast, immovable, unchangeable anchor for your soul. You will never drift as long as you are anchored in Christ, who is your hope. Like an anchor in a safe harbor, here's the transition into the theological. Think about a boat puts its anchor down in a safe harbor Our anchor of Christ enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So now he's using temple imagery, the holy of holies, which represents the presence of God. And he's saying, our hope enters into that place, a place that would literally strike us dead in our own merit but he goes in there ahead of us as a forerunner, as the great high priest to do business for us so that we can enter into that place and find mercy, find safety, find a refuge. It's interesting, Jesus is called a forerunner here and no priest had ever been a forerunner prior to him. A forerunner would mean that he's going in there to do something for the recipients that they can't do for themselves. But every high priest that ever entered into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the atonement of God's people, he first had to offer it for himself. So he's no forerunner, he's a representative. Like, I'm one of them. Jesus goes in as a forerunner, as a unique sinless high priest who can make peace with God on our behalf and then invite us in behind him. Such a beautiful picture of his kindness. God's made promises. He's made oaths to assure us of those promises. And it's interesting, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. 
He is our hope. And we have many things that cause us fear in this life, right? That cause us to feel fatigued. One thing we never have to fear is that God will faithfully fulfill his promises. So as a so what, this is what I wanted to do this morning. Uh, you know, when, when we have fatigue, it's kind of hard to think about what to go do because <laughs> we're tired of doing so this morning, I want to encourage you just to sit in a place, literally a place, two places, and uh, just meet the Lord there and see what he has to say to you. First, the first place is in Hebrews 4.16. We've already studied this passage, but listen to these words again. This is behind the curtain. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you are spiritually fatigued this morning, go to that place. Bring all of your needs, all of your doubts, all of your questions, all of your sadness, all of your pain. Bring that to the Lord, who's already made a place for you there, and receive mercy and grace. And then secondly, I thought of uh, in John 14, this is before Christ goes to the cross, but he says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas Maybe he was a little fatigued. said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And here's what Jesus said to him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The one whom God put in place for all of eternity, to usher you into his presence. So take a moment. Sit in that place. We talk about an empty chair in the presence of God. Go and take a seat. And uh, let the Lord minister to you today and reassure you of his promises. And I'll pray in a minute.